Welcome to the Empowered Curiosity Podcast, hosted by yours truly, Kat Lee. I'm here to explore the ideas, stories, and experiences that dig deep into what it means to be an empowered and curious human. Together, we'll connect over emotional alchemy, conscious relationships, and embodiment medicine. On this podcast, I'll be sharing tools, techniques, and wisdom about coming back home to the truest version of yourself. Hello and welcome to the Empowered Curiosity Podcast. I'm so glad you are here. And if this is your first time hopping on, I want to recommend a strong recommendation. Um, This is going to be episode five of a five-part series about conscious relationships. And um, I would recommend you go back a couple of episodes back to the one entitled The Trouble with Fairy Tale Endings and start there. These five episodes build on top of each other. And so you're going to get the most out of your time if you go through them in order. The other thing I want to share with you is that these five episodes I've recorded as a masterclass with a slideshow. And if there are journaling practices, most of these episodes have journaling practices. Um, I have created PDF journaling pages for you and you can access all of that completely for free if you go to empoweredcuriosity.com. Slide on over to the virtual courses tab and hit the Conscious Relationships 101 link. And all you have to do is input your email address and you get full download of these slides that I've made for you and a video and um, all the journaling pages. So if you are landing here at the right time, um, let's get into it. I am dropping so much information in this episode. It's going to be a dense one, so I hope you have your journals out. And so let's get into it. So a few weeks ago when we were talking about our relationship visions, I talked about how if you want vulnerability in your relationship, you can't just ask your partner to show up. You have to be willing to show up yourself and be vulnerable yourself. So in other words, you need to make an investment in the conscious relationship that you're trying to nurture. And I'm realizing that the relationship that I have with you as someone in my audience, in my community, this is no different. So I have been connecting more with the community these days. I was doing some market research calls a couple of weeks ago and I started noticing, you know, I... I'm hearing so many beautiful, beautiful stories, and I've not really shared my own. So today, um, I'm going to peel back all the layers and share my story around heartbreak, relationship blocks, and the work that I've personally done to cultivate conscious relationships in every aspect of my life. And we can all thank Allie for this. Um, She was one of the women that I was lucky enough to interview for my market research calls, and she was just like, so what got you into your spiritual journey? And so we were able to connect a little bit. And I just, I realized that I've not really shared much of my own journey. So we all get to thank Allie for, for story time with Kat today. So if you're out there, Allie, thank you. Hello. <laughs> um, so through my story, we're going to hit some key learning points today. So let's get into our overview 
we are going to reframe our definition of what it means to be a good girl or a good boy or, I mean, in these days, something gender neutral is appropriate here as well, whatever you identify as. We're also going to understand why we need to involve all the parts of yourself, the mind, body, and soul when it comes to alchemizing emotions. Identify how fear shows up specifically for you and your protective reaction around fear. We're going to do a journaling activity to, to move us through that. And then we're going to get intimate with something called the vagus nerve. And we're going to learn some experiential and embodiment tools to help you shift from reaction to response. And then we're also going to learn some lessons from the water element and its relationship to fear. And then we're going to just wrap this all up by creating a safe container for you to journal with some of your fears. At the very end of this, I am going to be going over some details about the Heart Lab, which is my eight-week group relationship coaching course. And um, we'll talk over you know, what it is that we cover in those eight weeks, what's included. And so if you are somebody who has listened to all five of these episodes and you're like, yeah, I'm totally digging this info, this is literally just the tip of the iceberg in what sort of support I can offer and what sort of information and learning we can do together. So I hope that that is um, something you'll stick around for. Okay. So my why, hmm. the idea of a conscious relationship didn't even cross my radar until about 2015 when I got divorced from my partner of 12 years. And I'm a bit of an overthinker and I had this one question that kept churning over and over again in my mind. And that question was, what the hell went wrong? And this was a really dangerous question to ask because what happened next was my spiritual breakdown. And it took a therapist, a yoga teacher, an acupuncturist, and a entire herd of best friends to help me through that mushy time in my life. And I've been wanting to have a conversation about love, conscious relationships, and communication and relational tools with this community ever since. Now, at this point, if you've been following my work, even for just a little while, you'll know that I love stories and I believe in the healing power of stories. I believe that hearing someone else's story at the exact moment you need it is a form of medicine. And I personally know the power of picking up the pen and rewriting my own story. And Owning and integrating all the parts of my story has been the strongest, the sweetest, and the most bitter dose of medicine I've ever encountered. So for the first 30 years of my life, let me just paint a picture for you. I was a person who hid from shame and I just covered it up. Sorry, I hid from pain and I just covered it up with shame. I found all sorts of fun ways to distract myself to create this illusion of safety. I used alcohol, credit cards, weed, overworking, but my drug of choice was a codependent relationship. So I met a really cute guy when he was 19 and I was 18, and uh, we got married when I was 25. 
And what happened along that timeline was that we weren't really right for each other. But instead of saying, thank you for loving me and, you know, goodbye, um, we created all this external structure to stay together. We had the car, the rings, the house, and, you know, I really thought I, you know, I pinned my happiness on all these external things. But I had this loneliness that was festering inside that I honestly, truly thought that that loneliness was going to get better with the next thing that we would buy together or the next thing that we would renovate or add to our house. And so I thought, you know, buying a couch for the living room is going to fix it because then we're going to spend more time in the living room watching TV together. Or, you know, if I refinish the deck, we'll have a place to barbecue and connect. And so, you know, I was a bit of a doer. I would definitely say that I had a type A sort of personality. And so this sort of logic worked really well for me because it had always worked well for me. You know, this is how I got myself through college. This is how I got myself through my master's program. This is how I had, you know, progressed in pretty much every job that I've had. It's, it's, you get validated for this, um, the doer part of your personality. So I felt like the solution was just always right around the corner. And so what I did is because the solution felt like it was just right there, I shifted myself to fit him and then he would mold himself to fit me. And then we turned around after a decade of being together and realized that we had both compromised ourselves away from our own inner authenticity and into a codependent relationship. And so what that meant for us is that we didn't know who we were when we took off the labels of husband and wife. And we both held these sacrifices that we had made for each other as ransom in the relationship while simultaneously walking on eggshells to avoid getting into yet another argument that we knew we couldn't resolve. So a month before my 29th birthday and our 12th anniversary, I found myself doing something that I never thought I could or would do. So just for context, I never traveled alone. And I was traveling alone for the first time in, I think I had done it once when I was 18. So I was in Canada for a fertility conference and I was alone for the first time in a decade without my husband, without my phone, and I was seriously contemplating kissing a man that I had met at a bar. But this wasn't just any guy. This man was listening to me, he was hearing me, and he was seeing me. And I didn't realize that I had been missing that it was just this like integral part of myself that i had didn't i didn't even know that i was missing it and through his eyes through his ears through his perception i felt like i was hearing and seeing myself for the first time so i went home and i told my husband I told him that the open relationship that I'd been wanting for years and we'd sort of danced around it and like sort of talked about it, we really needed to talk about it now. Um, I also told him that I felt like my identity was shifting and, you know, 
it felt like I was really stepping into my values and I wanted him to come with me. And I told him, I am so sorry. I feel like I've been asleep at the wheel in our relationship. He got really quiet. And then he said, so it sounds like you're asking for a separation. Let's just get a divorce. So poof, just like that 12 years gone in one conversation. So I went to therapy for the first time in my life and I walked in there with this mentality of like, I'm going to crush this because I had completely convinced myself that I was going to do this part of my life right. I told her I'm in so much pain and I know that intuitively if I don't process this pain, I'm going to go right back to hiding bottles of vodka in the laundry room. So. You know that stereotype of a therapist who leans back in their chair and starts asking about your family? Well, I had one of those. And I so did not want to go there. But here is what we discovered. We are born whole. Mind, body, and spirit. But culture and society and family gives us these confusing messages about our bodies and our spirits. And then we start disassociating from them because good girls are quiet and good girls are passive and good girls are happy with what they're given and they're not angry or they're sad. You know, good girls are selfless, they're caring, they're giving, they never complain. And so I felt like the only place that felt safe for me was in my mind. And being from a Korean family, this was a really good place for me to live because it meant that when I got straight A's, my parents would buy me ice cream. And even if you didn't grow up in a Korean family, I'd be willing to bet money that you were validated for what your mind and body could do, but not what your emotions were like. But as I grew up, I realized that I had all these desires, all these feelings, and I wanted to speak, and I wanted to speak really loudly, and I wanted to be seen as a sexual being, and I wanted to move, and you know, I had all these grandiose ideas about what I could do with my life, and none of them really fit into these boxes, and I had these really big, big feelings, and when I expressed them, I was told that I was too much. Um, so I became ashamed of my body and my emotions, I just disassociated and I just lived from my head. And I'm sure, you know, if I put myself in the shoes of my ex-husband, something similar was happening to him as he was growing up. You know, good boys are brave. Good boys are strong and courageous and fearless. Um, I've heard from multiple men that they were allowed to express happiness and anger, but really none of the other emotions in the crayon box were allowed for boys. And so we have this really strange thing in our society. We have good girls and good boys, and we're watching movies about happily ever after, and we're trying to love from our spirit, but nobody is home. And everything we learn about how to be a good kid, how to be a good person, makes it impossible for us to be a fully integrated human being that is able to connect and live from the body, mind, and spirit which really makes it impossible for us to really hear and see each other. Like this is one of the 
the main things that I hear folks complain about is like, I just want to be seen. I just want to be heard. I just want to be accepted um, like 100% for exactly who I am. And when we aren't able to see or hear each other, it's impossible for us to actually love each other. And what happens is we disconnect from these parts of ourselves and we disassociate from these, these really important aspects of ourselves and that creates shame. So shame is nothing more than a fractured part of yourself that you have distanced and put into a box or really shunned. So the lesson that I learned from my therapist is that we are all born whole. And to return to that wholeness, we need to remember and love and validate our bodies and our spirits, as especially the parts of ourselves that society has deemed as not being good enough. So while I was going to therapy, I was also going to yoga several times a week. I had the same intention of totally crushing it with yoga. And I'm thinking, I'm going to stretch and I'm going to get strong and yoga is going to get me through this divorce. But I hated, absolutely hated Savasana. And for those of you who um, don't know what Savasana is, the translation for Savasana, it's a pose in yoga. The translation for Savasana is corpse pose. And it is the part of yoga class, it's usually at the end of yoga class where you just lay there on the ground for like a full five minutes. It's basically torture. And I hated it so much that I would tell my yoga teacher, you know, I'm so sorry, but I scheduled something right after class. So I'm going to have to leave class just like 10 minutes early. And then I'd roll up my yoga mat and just walk out the door. Spoiler alert, I totally did not have anything to do after um, class. It was just, I hated Savasana that much. So at this point, I had told my yoga teacher enough times that I was, you know, busy, um, that we both knew what was going to happen. And it was just like this unspoken rule that I was going to get up right before Savasana. So after weeks of this, um, he did a clever little thing. We were going through our yoga flow, and then he had us do savasana in the middle of class. And then apparently he was also going to talk his way through savasana. <laughs> and this is what he said. I will never forget this. He said, savasana is the most important of all yoga poses because it forces us to simply be. You do not have to do anything. You do not have to be anywhere. You are enough. Just be. And tears. <laughs> it felt like my body had been running, 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 and finally in corpse pose, my physical body had slowed down enough for my spirit to actually catch up. And my spirit was tired, and she was pissed off and she was scared and she was grieving and you know I was so pissed off at the loneliness of being married to a man who didn't love me I felt ashamed that I had cheated on my husband I was also relieved to be leaving my husband and I had allowed myself to cry just once one time the entire time my husband and I were getting divorced you guys 
I got divorced from a man I had shared my life with for 12 years and I hadn't felt any of it. Because honestly, it felt like if I started crying, I was never going to stop. And so for 10 minutes, I had to just lay there and surrender to all of this. And it felt like, and I'm not even exaggerating here, this is why I think they call it corpse pose. It felt like I was going to die. And after just a couple of minutes, you know, my teacher started the asana practice back up again. And he came to me and he placed his hands on the very top of my head on the crown. And he just told me to stay there. So I laid on that mat and I cried for the next, I don't know, like maybe 30 or 40 minutes while everyone else did sun salutations and pigeon pose or whatever else they were doing. And I felt like for the first time in my life, what it felt like to be fully human, like a fully integrated mind, body, and spirit human being. And laying there in corpse pose and then coming out of it, it, I really felt like I had a rebirth. And then at the end of class, Kofi, my yoga teacher, he just looked at me and he said, good job. And I never <laughs> excused myself from Shavasana ever again. Later that week, as if by some stroke of magic, I picked up a book by Pima Chodron, who is a beautiful Buddhist writer. If you guys haven't read her work yet, you need to go pick, like literally you could just pick anything up, just like let intuition guide you on this one. Um, but I read something that she wrote. I can't remember the book. Um... I'm going to have to reference that later. I don't remember the name of the book. But she wrote, we think that the point is to pass the test or to overcome the problem. But the truth is that things don't really get solved. They come together and they fall apart. Then they come together again and fall apart again. And it's just like that. The healing comes from letting there be room for all this to happen. Room for grief, for relief, for misery, for joy. And now that I'm reading the quote, I totally remember the name of the book. It's called When Things Fall Apart. That makes sense, right? So I had an acupuncturist. She was the other little cog in my little healing team. And she kept asking me about my inner child. So freaking annoying, right? So she was always asking me, what does your inner child need right now? What does your inner what did your inner child not receive when you were young? And I started talking to my inner child and it was definitely reluctantly at first. So if you are already there, you are miles ahead of where I was at this time. So I learned so much about myself that I had been holding back. I learned compassion for myself and for my parents. So my parents had experienced a whole lot of pain in their lives, having grown up in broken families and in poverty. So when they became parents, they thought that their job was to create this nice, cozy little bubble around me and my brother so we wouldn't feel any of the pain that they had felt when they were growing up. So I never saw my parents fight. Nobody yelled or cried in our house. If they were angry, there was just silence. Sadness was pushed aside with vacations to make us feel better. Grief was masked over with busyness. So 
it was this extreme in my family. So my brother and I went to um, New York for the summer. And before we had left, we had a family dog. And then when we got back, we found out that um, my parents had put our dog down because she was old. And we literally had like one conversation about it. It was like, what happened to Belle? And my parents said, oh, she was old. And that was the conversation. That was literally it. So feelings, not a thing in my family. (laughs) Um, But the thing that I've done or the work that I've done around inner child work has shown me that my parents were actually doing their best. They couldn't see how they were actually projecting their own fears, their own insecurities and unresolved emotions onto us. And by protecting us from the very things they needed to help us navigate, they were actually making us less resilient to life. By not acknowledging their own feelings, they were teaching us to bury our feelings. So when I started having feelings like sadness and anger and grief, which, I mean, all those things happen when you're like 16, right? So I didn't know that this was just part of being a human being because I had parents who did not model emotions for me. So I thought there was something wrong with me. And the thing with our world is, as soon as you start feeling these negative emotions, the world gives you these exit doors that that help you get out of them, right? And they're really shiny. So food and sex and shopping and gossip and social media, which was not a thing when I was young, but it certainly became a thing as I grew older. Um, But eventually I was playing whack-a-mole with a whole arsenal of addictions. But the problem is that when we keep pushing these buttons, when we keep opening that exit door, we miss an opportunity. We miss this huge opportunity for transformation. And when I sifted through the forensic evidence of my relationship with my ex-husband, I was left with this core fundamental question. And this question was, what would happen if you stopped being afraid of pain and you decided that you were strong enough to integrate your fear and you were able to alchemize it? How would that transform your life, your relationships, and the world? Because, my friends, we are made for pain. Our pain is our salvation. When we surrender to pain, we make friends with our shadows. We start looking at our fears differently. We remember that we are not broken. When we move towards that shame, we recognize our humanity. So my divorce was a deeply, deeply painful experience, possibly one of the most painful experiences I've ever been through. But through my divorce, I developed deeper relationships with my friends because they led me by example. They showed me that when they embraced my pain without trying to fix it or change it, I felt seen and fully heard as a human being. And from this place of being fully seen and heard, I was able to heal and transform everything about how I love. When I look around at my inner circle, this is who I see. I'm a Gemini, so I have like 20 best friends, but these are the ones who were 
able to hold space for me. So I have a bestie who once told me, Kat, I totally see your fear, but you have to feel the fear and do it anyway. And then I have another best friend who sat down with me when I was in my deepest, darkest, like ugly cry, snot running down my face, gasping for air, that kind of hole, right? And she said nothing, but she just held me and let me cry. And then I was so ashamed actually about about leaving uh, my ex-husband that I slept out of my car for about two weeks and um, didn't tell anybody. And when I finally started sharing, my best friend found out that I'd been sleeping out of my car for two weeks. She let me stay in her family's extra bedroom for months before I, so that I can get myself back on my feet. And she refused rent. um, And really the only thing she would accept from me was bacon and eggs in the morning. (laughs) So my best friends never try to fix me because they don't see me as broken. They are able to meet me in my pain because they've done the work to feel the depths of their own pain. And they're not afraid of my pain because they know that I'm resilient enough to get through this. And we all need that reminder sometimes. I also lost a lot of friends in that divorce, but I know that if I were to ask those friends why they disappeared, it wouldn't be for a malicious reason. I know that they are not bad people, but I have a feeling that they would say, I just didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to fix it. And I just want to, I don't know, introduce, reinforce. I don't know what the word here is, but I just want to share that it is not our job as friends to fix each other. So when we embrace pain, we become better parents too. And my parents felt like their one job was to protect me from pain. If you were to ask them, I'm sure that what they would say is they want me and my brother to be kind people. They want us to be wise and resilient. But another one of my favorite writers, her name is Glennon Doyle, what she says is, what is it in a human life that creates kindness and wisdom and resilience? It's pain. It's the struggle. It's not having nothing to overcome. It's overcoming and overcoming and overcoming. So is it possible that we are trying to protect our children from the one thing that will allow them to become the people we dream they'll be? So when we embrace pain, we become better partners, which leads us into conscious relationships. And success in a relationship is not defined. We, like, this is my... <laughs> This is like my mandate in life. We need to stop defining success in relationships as being defined by touching our genitals to one other person's genitals for the rest of our lives. Success in a relationship is about learning and it's about transforming and it's about alchemizing. And the juice in relationships is not about how long we can go without fighting. It's about how can we take care of each other and the relationship when, not if, But when shit gets hard, how do we as individuals become resilient and how do we as a couple keep investing in this relationship? And so for this, you need to be a partner who is brave enough to be still with your partner's pain because you've done the work to be still with your own pain. 
you need to be a partner who can respond rather than react because you're not projecting your own old family baggage or your relationship baggage onto this other human being who is standing right in front of you. So me, I went kicking and screaming into that pain. It took a therapist, a yoga teacher, an acupuncturist, and a herd of best friends, like I told you in the beginning. And heartbreak is hard, y'all. I get that. But what happens when you allow your heart to break and you don't hit that like exit door, you don't push that button. And when you sit with your emotions, like really sit with your emotions, what it does is it guides you to your people. Healing does not happen in isolation. Healing happens in community. And I see this over and over and over again because I, I lead retreats and I, and I lead group workshops. And there is just something that just clicks into place when you do work in community that I just, I, I've not been able to replicate it in one-on-one work. So when you sit with that hot loneliness, it allows you to deepen the love you already have present in your life. It helps you find your partner and it is the best filtration system out there because what heartbreak does is it magnetizes the same people who are doing the same work that you are doing and it can inspire your current partner to do their own work. This is why I keep showing up, you guys. This is why I felt like I needed to share my story and I use my story as an invitation to help you see your own. And this is also why I've stopped hitting the buttons on my exit doors because I want you to see that you are not your coping mechanisms. That true safety is not about running away from or numbing fear. Safety happens when you lean into your fear and your pain and you learn from it. And my hope is that you use this resonance that we get to experience in this little tiny corner of the universe, in this tiny corner of the internet, and you're able to use it to understand and transform your own narrative. And so this is why I created Conscious Relationships 101. It's also why I created the Heart Lab, because what I want to do is I want to destigmatize the shame in learning how to be a better partner. I want us to see that vulnerability in relationships actually makes relationships stronger. Because here's the thing, you have been given the wrong job description on how to be a good boy, a good girl, a good human, which means that you've been given the wrong job description on how to be a good partner. So if you don't like the story you're in, recognize that you are the one holding the pen. And we get the wheels turning here. We get some momentum moving here in the Conscious Relationships 101. But in the Heart Lab, you're going to pick up that pen and you're going to take ownership over your story because your story is the most valuable thing you will own in this life. We will brew up your very own batch of strong, sweet, bitter medicine, and I will help you integrate that pain that you've been running away from. And on the other side of that that sticky, cloying, just burning hot loneliness is you're going to find bravery, consciousness, and alignment. 
And now I want to spend the rest of our time together here in Conscious Relationships 101 talking about fear specifically and how to integrate fear because that is often the emotion that blocks us from being able to surrender. And it prevents us from actually looking at our pain and looking at our challenges as our teachers is because we're so scared of fear. Or sorry, we're so we're so scared of pain. And I call myself an emotional alchemy coach, but I don't think I've ever publicly sort of explained what emotional alchemy is. So let's start there. Emotional alchemy. Alchemy is the process of transforming something ordinary into something extraordinary. So the way I describe emotional alchemy is it is the transformation of an emotion in its purest form into an integrated version of that emotion that operates as a conduit to fully express your soul. That sounds kind of fancy, but really what I mean by this is that when we fully integrate our emotions, we no longer work from the part of us that feels wounded and we're able to see the emotions exactly as they are. We're able to understand their messages and see the lessons that we can learn from them. And when we're not hiding from our emotions, we are able to align with us with our soul's purpose, which is our Tao, our path. So fear. Fear is an experience that affects all levels of our being, which is why I think it's just a really wonderful emotion to work with because we all know what that feels like. We understand that it is something that manifests in the mind, body, and spirit. And when fear is left untended, it mutates into trauma. And that can be from both um, big T trauma or little t trauma. But when we alchemize fear, it turns it into will and it's a powerful force for motivation and purpose. So let's start with what fear physiologically looks like in the body. And it's helpful to start here because fear, like many of our emotions, affects the body and our body has a remembrance of that emotion. So even if you can talk yourself into logic, you know, of course he's not going to cheat on me when he goes out with his friends. Your body remembers what it felt like when your ex did cheat on you. And when your nervous system feels threatened and afraid, a whole host of downstream effects happen that move from the realm of the body into the mind and then like into the spirit. And that informs how you feel, how you act and react when fear comes up. So essentially, our nervous system is wired in two different settings. The sympathetic, what I call the, or what we call the fight, flight or freeze mode, or the parasympathetic, which is the rest and relax mode. And we can think about the sympathetic nervous system as the gas pedal. This means that your body and mind become primed for action. And so this is particularly useful when we're trying to stay alive. And so it's literally what kept us alive when we were humans running away from bears. You know, we evolved from humans who were running away from from apex predators at some point, right? But the sympathetic nervous system also gets turned on when you are in any sort of situation where you don't feel safe or you feel triggered, whether this is a new environment, having an argument with a friend, when there's a looming work deadline, when you're dealing with the aftermath of your partner cheating on you, or you are actually under attack. 
So what happens when our gas pedal gets turned on is that our adrenal glands pump adrenaline into the bloodstream. That induces a cascade of changes in our bodies. What happens is pupils dilate and that's so that we can detect danger. Um, blood pressure rises. Oh, sorry, the heart pumps faster um, in order to pump blood to our muscles. And then the blood pressure rises, which sends blood flow to the head because we might need to problem solve our way out of a scenario. And fear is an incredibly helpful emotion in short spurts because it helps us react quickly when we need to. But the problem is that when we don't fully process our fear, it festers and turns into trauma. So we're going to talk about fear versus trauma because they're two different things. So fear is real. It is a reaction to a threatening event. So in the example I gave you above, the fear, the anger, the betrayal, the confusion that happens when your ex cheated on you was a valid reaction. And you know your nervous system thought it was safe one moment, and then the next moment your sympathetic nervous system gets kicked on and a whole cascade of you know, all the things we talked about, adrenal glands and pupils and heartbeat and blood pressure, all that starts happening. But once your nervous system calms back down, if you don't give yourself a chance to process that story of betrayal and instead you hit one of the many exit doors we have in life, so addiction and shopping and rebounding, what your nervous system does is it doesn't know what to do with that information. All it knows is that it hurt like hell when he cheated and you don't ever want to feel like that again. So it sort of stays on this like low rev, slightly kicked on nervous system. And so this festered fear turns into trauma and traumatized people are suspicious and reactive. And so that's why even when your current partner has given you no reason to think that they're out there on the prowl when they go out with their friends, your thoughts immediately go to, you know, I wonder if he's going to cheat. And you start acting like someone who is suspicious of their partner. So fear is the reaction to an event, but trauma is the story that we continue to tell ourselves. And the curious thing about trauma is that our body doesn't really understand the difference between a lived experience and a remembered one. So when someone is experiencing a stressful event... We can test for biomarkers like stress hormones in their bloodstream, and these same biomarkers show up when the person is remembering that event. So in other words, from the perspective of the body, there is no difference between experiencing a fearful event or remembering it in a traumatic way. So one of my favorite books about trauma um, and honestly, like one of my all-time favorite books ever is this book called My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menikin. Um, I've referenced this book multiple times on this, po on this podcast. But Resma Menikin, he speaks specifically about racialized trauma in the United States, which makes it a bit of an odd book to be recommending in a course about romantic relationships. But trauma is trauma is trauma. And he just has this really beautifully in-depth way of explaining trauma and he does it in such an integrated way. 
And so what he does is he talks specifically about how pain is stored in the body in the form of clean pain or dirty pain. And he says it so much better than I could. So I wrote down this excerpt that I wanted to read for you. Okay, so clean pain is pain that mends and can build your capacity for growth. It's the pain you experience when you know exactly what you need to say or do, when you really, really don't want to say or do it, and when you do it anyway. It's also the pain you experience when you have no idea what to do, when you're scared or worried about what might happen, and when you step forward into the unknown anyway with honesty and vulnerability. Experiencing clean pain enables us to engage our integrity and tap into our body's inherent resilience and coherence in a way that dirty pain does not. Paradoxically, only by walking into our pain or discomfort, experiencing it, moving through it, and metabolizing it can we grow. It's how the human body works. Clean pain hurts like hell, but it enables our body to grow through our difficulties, develop nuanced skills, and mend our trauma. And in this process, the body metabolizes clean pain. The body can then settle. There's more room for growth created in its nervous system, and the self becomes freer and more capable because it now has access to energy that was previously protected, bound, and constricted. Dirty pain is the pain of avoidance, blame, and denial. When people respond from their most wounded parts, become cruel or violent, or physically or emotionally run away, they experience dirty pain. They also create more of it for themselves and for others. And so, oh, I just, I love that little excerpt. Um, so much wisdom there. And really, much of the work that we're doing today is this. We are alchemizing dirty pain from fear and transforming it into clean pain. So now let's talk about how fear specifically shows up in your body. This is a good place to start our work with fear because we can see that through our bodies, emotion has a physical location and finding our way always starts with looking up the address. So let's whip out our journals or our journal with curiosity prompt pages, which you can download right here. Or if you are listening to the podcast, head on over to empoweredcuriosity.com, go on the virtual courses tab, and then scroll down to Conscious Relationships 101, plug in your email, and you have access to our journaling sheets. I am going to talk us through this exercise, and then at the very end, I'll give you a little bit of time and some music by Mayan Kites so that you can do some journaling on your own. So just for the next couple minutes, just listen, and then I'll prompt you. So we're going to write about what fear looks and feels like in your body. And the reason why we're doing this is because everyone has a different expression of what, of what fear feels like. And so it's important to know exactly what it feels like for you. So we'll start with where, and then name the sensation. Is it in your shoulders? Is it in your gut? Is it in your legs? Does it feel clenching? Does it feel tight? Is it hollow? Is it heavy? The more specific we can get, the more we are allowing that feeling to come to life, which sounds kind of scary, right? But let's just sink into this. Let's, let's really get into it. Emotions are simply information. 
And sometimes our body gets a hit before our brain does, like our logical brain. So think about it. I'm sure you've experienced this. When you feel sort of just uncomfortable or squicked out next to a person, or you get diarrhea right before you step into a meeting with your boss, or you get that like sinking, like 10 pound rock in your stomach feeling that your friend shouldn't go home with that guy at the bar. This is your body putting up the check engine light. And when you have this awareness, you will be able to name it in the moment as it's happening so you can respond rather than react to your fear. So for an example, if I close my eyes and think about what fear feels like in my body, it feels like my stomach is dropping out. It feels like my breath gets shallow and like I can't sink it down into my stomach. My fists clench and I get this really distinctive prickly sensation from the tips of my shoulder blades up to the base of my skull, particularly on the right side of my neck. That's where, my, that's where I usually get migraines when I get migraines. So since I've developed this awareness around my body, I know that I need to pay close attention when I get that tingly sensation at the top of my spine. And notice that the descriptions don't place judgment or value. It is simply about looking at your body like it is a science experiment and writing down the neutral observations. Because emotions are simply information. And if we ignore pieces of information, we're working with flawed data. We are seeing things through the lens of dirty pain, and it is going to result in some pretty faulty conclusions. So next, it's time to get real with yourself and ask yourself how you react when fear comes up. You need to know what your reactions are so that you can slow it down in real time and respond in the face of fear. When we are in reaction mode, we are also literally in survival mode. Our perspective narrows and our singular priority is keep myself safe. So let's reframe this for how we show up in relationships. When you are in a state of fight or flight, you are scanning your environment for threats, right? And research shows that you are not able to read faces very well when your sympathetic nervous system is aroused. So you might read your partner's neutral expression as anger, or they may be fearful and you might read them as aggressive. So as you can imagine, this is incredibly difficult for relationships. Being able to understand your sympathetic nervous system reaction means that you're able to respond instead of react in stressful situations. So I know that my personal reaction is going to be to find someone to blame. And I can wear that victim cape like it is my favorite hoodie that never goes out of style. And in working with calming down my nervous system, I've learned that actually most of the time people are not out to get me like my ego wants to believe. Rather, if I have an interaction that puts me back on my heels, I have to recognize that it's because my story got entangled with their entangled story. And I just want to take a quick but important detour because since we're talking about fear, I do want to address that if you are undergoing physical or emotional abuse, none of these strategies apply. 
please do not use the exercises of self-healing that I teach here as an excuse to stay with your abusive partner. Seek help, work with a therapist, reach out to me as a coach, reach out to safe members of your community. This is not an excuse for you to stay in that pattern. Okay, so let's get back into our work. And I want you to just take a moment actually more than a moment, like four moments, like four minutes of moments. Um, and I am going to just hit pause, play some nice music um, that Mayan Kites has produced for us. And if at the very end of the four minutes, you still feel like you need to do a little bit more work, just hit pause. And then I'll just be right here when you get back.
Okay, welcome back. So moving on, in our Western culture, we have a tendency to think about healing as a binary, as in we are either broken or we are healed from that brokenness. And healing work is truly a journey. And along that journey, you're going to have moments where you are utterly in the depths of feeling torn apart. And you are also going to have moments where all the connections just seem to be, you know, like hitting their mark. So when working with fear and anxiety that comes from unintegrated trauma, we need to understand that the fear and anxiety are not symptoms that we need to quote unquote cure. You will never not feel fear and it would actually not be helpful to strive for that because fear is an adaptive quality. It's important that you're able to feel alert to potential dangers. And yes, it is possible for our anxieties to be out of balance, in which case it's helpful to load your toolbox with skills to help you become more resilient. And we're going to go over many of those tools in the Heart Lab. But the thing I want to highlight is that the goal of alchemizing our emotions is not to never feel anxiety again. Let's talk about the vagus nerve. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, and I envision this nerve as the general of the autonomic nervous system, which regulates the fight, flight, and flee reaction, as well as the rest and digest response. So it really is that, it's that general that's like clicking that, that nervous system off and on. So it meanders through the body. In particular, it relays information back and forth between the digestive system, the heart, the lungs, and the brain. And when you feel your sympathetic nervous system turning on, this is the nerve that is relaying all that bodily information. This is why for most people, when they feel nervous or anxious, they experience it as a tight feeling in the chest or digestive discomfort. And so when we say, listen to your gut, what is actually more accurate to say, if you want to be super nerdy with me, is to listen to your vagus nerve. Resma Menicum calls this the soul nerve. And when stimulated, the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest and digest, it gets turned on and the vagus nerve signals the brain to secrete neurotransmitters like acetylcholine and GABA. And these are two components that actually calm you down and they counteract the cortisol and adrenaline that your body pumps up when we are in the fight or flight mode. So we have the capacity to train your vagus nerve, which means you have the capacity to pull yourself out of that fight or flight mode because your vagus nerve can become toned when you exercise it. It's just like your bicep in that the more you work it, the more you bring attention and awareness to it, the easier it becomes to use it. So I'm gonna share four things you can do to train your vagus nerve and to calm down your nervous system. So number one, this is gonna sound stupidly simple. Breathing. <laughs> So this is the baby step to meditation, and you don't have to be a Zen monk all wrapped up in robes on a mountaintop to be somebody who meditates. Eckhart Tolle says, three mindful breaths in and out is a meditation. And when you breathe, your vagus nerve goes to work. So on the inhale, your heart rate increases, and on the exhale, your heart rate decreases. So when you elongate and focus on the exhale as you breathe, you automatically engage your parasympathetic nervous system. So just 
doing a quick three breath cycle in through the nose specifically because that's the most efficient way to get oxygen. It's a, it's a more efficient way to get oxygen rather than breathing through the mouth while you're standing in line at the grocery store, you know, while you're on break at work or while you're journaling, these are, it's going to do some wonderful things to keep your vagus nerve fit. The second thing to do is to breathe while you are twisting. So when you can add an abdominal twist with the breath, you're giving your vagus nerve an extra dose of love. And the reason for that is because twisting helps relax the digestive system, which gets clenched when you're in a sympathetic dominant state. And specifically, there's a muscle called the psoas that's really deep in the abdominal muscles and it attaches to the leg muscles. And its purpose is to, it turns into this like tight little spring when you're in that fight or flight mode. And so you can see how you want that, that spring engaged so that you can act in a moment's notice, right? So twisting and breathing simultaneously helps to relax that little muscle and it tells your body that it is safe because typically you're not twisting while you're running away from a bear. I don't know. That seemed to make logical sense to me. <laughs> the third thing to do is to connect. So in a 2010 study published in the Journal of Biology Psychology, researchers found that study participants who had higher vagal tone were able to access positive emotions and feelings of connectedness faster. So they, connect, they, they concluded that there's this positive feedback loop between feeling connected to your community and to your vagal tone. And then the fourth little tool in your toolbox when it comes to toning your vagus nerve is moving. So for many people, exercise is a form of stress relief. And as we exercise, what it does is it tones our vagus nerve, which stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system again. And, but there's like this optimal amount of exercise that is unique person to person. It's kind of like Goldilocks, right? So fanatic exercise isn't great for you um, because it can like trigger your adrenal system and like really mess with that, that part of your body. But neither is being a couch potato. So somewhere in between is ideal, right? But more importantly than simply getting your cardio in, it's more important that you're actually enjoying whatever form of exercise you're engaging in. Being able to shift our body physically from fight or flight to rest and digest is particularly useful in the midst of a triggering conversation or when your attachment wound is getting riled up or if it feels like your partner is being particularly critical. Because when you're in fight or flight and your nervous system is scanning for threats, it's so easy to see your partner as a threat to fight or flee from. And so by taking control of your physical nervous system, you're going to be better able to respond rather than react when you're feeling threatened. In the Heart Lab, we'll fill up your toolbox even more with specific exercises and communication techniques to diffuse situations and bring both you and your partner from this like highly fearful, triggered state to a place where you can both listen and hear each other. Now we're going to shift gears into Taoist medicine for a minute. And in the Taoist medicine tradition, we use metaphors from nature to explain the human experience. And water is the element that represents fear. 
So water represents fear because fear is a lot like water in that if you don't give water a container, it spreads everywhere, which is fine when you're talking about a puddle on the sidewalk, but when we're talking about roof damage on a house, this is serious business, right? So water has this ability to find every little nook and cranny that you didn't even know is vulnerable in your house. And the same applies for fear and your psyche. You didn't even know that it was a tender place until some fear got poured into it. In Eastern medicine, we draw parallels between the emotions and the elements, but we also look to nature for how to find balance. And in the case of water, it needs earth to hold it. So think about your favorite clay mug that holds your tea, the banks along the river that gives water direction and purpose. So this is what we're going to do with the next journal with curiosity prompt. We are going to create some structure, so some earth, to hold your fear so it doesn't feel overwhelming. Often we project our past experiences and fears onto our current reality. And sometimes it feels like if we allow ourselves to feel the pain of fear, we are not going to be able to stop the tidal waves. So our ego's natural response is to try to control all the things, right? We go into circular patterns of thought, trying to control the things that are uncomfortable, trying to read between the lines and making up stories. And really, it all comes down to our relationship with the unknown. So in Western culture, we are not good at unknowns. We don't like having unanswered questions. And when we don't get all the answers or we don't get all the answers we want, we have a tendency to fight and grasp. So now let me ask you a question. Is this, is this really working for you? So this is going to be much easier said than done, but have you considered surrendering? Maybe trusting, maybe allowing your path, allowing the Tao to unfold. Now, I know that in Western culture, we have a tendency to think about surrendering as being a weakness and being like this passive sort of fuck it, I give up sort of process. But in Eastern philosophy, it is a highly engaged process. It may not necessarily be an active process, but it is going to require your entire being and your entire consciousness. And when we do this, we put our faith into a story that is much bigger than our own egos. We get real about what the stories are that you are projecting and the future that you are manifesting when we do this. Because my dear, you are both the river and the riverbed. And our fear is so closely tied to our ego. And that voice can be quite the imaginative little gremlin. Our ego tries to think of the 10,000 different scenarios in which this could go wrong. And it tricks you into thinking that this brainstorming strategy will make you better prepare for the disaster that's just right around the corner. Or the ego is going to whisper that you have control over things that you don't actually have control over. And it runs wild trying to get you to think about what you should do to get the result that you want. But when we give fear a purpose, when we give water a purpose, like think about the river that is flowing to the oceans, like how much life there is along that river, we are able to alchemize it into will. So to create the riverbed, to create that earth element within you when you are feeling overwhelmed by water, when you're feeling overwhelmed by fear, 
What we do is we bring ourselves to the present moment and we create structure. We keep our attention on the knowable aspects of the current situations in our lives by asking, what am I afraid of? What do I know for sure? What do I not know? What is under my control? And what is not under my control? And what is fear trying to share with me? And what we are doing by asking these questions is we're speaking to that fearful child that is within, the one that's felt fear before and is scared of going there again. It's scary to open up the heart. And that little one is wondering, if I allow myself to feel fear, will I ever be able to stop? And that's what this week's prompt is all about. It's about scooping up that scared little kid, giving them a hug, acknowledging and giving the emotion the structure of space to express itself. And when we embody the archetype of Mama Earth, when we sink into this safety within ourselves, we are no longer afraid of our water overflowing and finding all those nooks and crannies because we know that our vessel is solid. When we are able to sit and embrace fear, we integrate and we have the capacity to sit with these thoughts. We're able to think, I am so grateful for rain. And I wonder what fear is trying to teach me right now. We're able to approach fear with curiosity. Or isn't it interesting how different this experience is for me? I used to move so quickly. I used to be a scared little kid because I didn't want to be with this part of myself. Because until we learn how to do this, fear is going to find different ways to keep leaking into our consciousness and mutating into trauma. And again, as Pima Chodron says, nothing ever goes away until it teaches us what we need to know. And this is how we alchemize fear into will. So I am going to give you four minutes, which you're probably going to need more than four minutes. Um, but that's how long I will give you. And again, if you get to the end of it and you need more time, just go ahead and hit the pause button and come join me when you're done.
you have made it through all five modules of Conscious Relationships 101. And if you've made it through all five modules, then we are going to be such a good fit in the Heart Lab. Because you are someone who recognizes that conscious relationships don't just happen and you are ready to do that, that deep self-healing work in the container of a community. So I want to ask you, imagine how different your relationship to love could be if you felt safe enough to show up to your relationship as your whole self without feeling the need to shrink or puff up to avoid feeling rejected or unloved? How different would love be if you could identify your relational patterns so you stopped being so triggered and getting sucked into the same cycles of suffering over and over again? Or if you're in a relationship already, how different would life be if you were equipped with a communication and relational toolbox so that when you run into challenges, you could actually approach them compassionately and consciously with your partner as a team? So I want to give you a bit of a roadmap. And this is a flyover view of what we're going to learn in the Heart Lab. So step one is going to be about setting intentions for a conscious relationship. This is an eight-week course, and so I'm just going to run you through what the eight weeks looks like. So in week one, we create a detailed vision for not just the relationship, but for the truest version of yourself. And from there, we're going to learn what your unique, healthy, conscious relationship looks like, and we're going to help you create habits that allow you to take radical and empowered responsibility to move you towards your relationship vision. So that's week one. In week two, we um, start to learn what your relational patterns are like. And so before we get into the how to heal, we have to understand the why. So why we feel triggered and act in ways that do not serve our, our truest self. So in week two, we get to the root of your belief structures. We understand where your love origin story comes from. We're going to identify your attachment wounds and your protest behaviors. And then you're going to learn how to witness the ego and the inner child when they're under threat. And all of this work is to identify exactly what your relational needs are to feel safe in partnership. Step three is going to be about integrating the relational wounds. And so in weeks three and four, we will cultivate embodiment practices to alchemize emotions. And so we'll start to incorporate tools on how to reparent that inner child and shed the ego. Step four is about filling up the communication toolbox. And so we'll spend weeks five and six learning how to have good faith conversations and that's going to be about using responsive listening skills. And, and if we think back to week two, we identified what your safety needs are. So now we're going to learn how to place and receive bids for intimacy to have those needs met. And then we'll understand the power of a sincere apology and learn how and when to apologize to create a stronger bond in the partnership. Okay, so that brings us to step five, which is about taking care of your relationship like it's a Tamagotchi pet. And what I mean by that is I grew up in the 90s, and when I was a little kid, I had like a little egg-shaped video game that was strapped to my backpack. And this Tamagotchi pet, this video game, required me to perform eight actions to keep it alive. And 
your relationship is no different. We are going to put all this transformative work that you've done in the past few weeks and tie it all together by learning how to take care of your relationship, just like you would a Tamagotchi pet. Hopefully a little bit more intention, but um, I use each of the actions that you would use to take care of your Tamagotchi pet as um, what you need to do for your relationship. Okay, so let's talk about what the program looks like because I'm sure you're curious. We do eight weeks of detailed curriculum with educational videos. You also get weekly Zoom group coaching calls. And so that's the circle. And really, I'm so, so excited about this community aspect of um, doing a group coaching program. Like I said earlier, um, I've seen so such deep transformational work that happens in community. And I love that technology allows us to gather in communities these days. You also get daily um, community support via a private Facebook group, so that's pretty self-explanatory. And then you also get daily individual support via um, an, uh, an app called Voxer, and so you get access to me personally through the eight-week program. And what that looks like is it's a messaging app, and so you can send we can send each other text messages and voice notes back and forth to each other, and I guarantee a 24-hour turnaround um, on those messages. You also get three one-on-one -on -one emotional alchemy sessions with me, and so I honestly don't know any other group coaching program that offers one-on-one -on -one work um, integrated into the curriculum, and so really I'm. I'm doing this because I'm so committed to you having a transformative experience. And, and I thought about, okay, so if I want to be able to create the sort of transformations that I know is possible, what sort of container does that look like? And so what I landed on is this sort of hybrid model of group coaching and also one-on-one -on -one work. And then finally, you also get some heart lab work that's embodiment and journaling prompts, and you'll get those weekly as well. So you know my why. I would love to connect with you, if, especially if you've made it all the way through these five sessions. It was a big commitment, and if you made it through, that means that there's something that's pinging at your heart and, and is resonating for, me, for you. You know my why. I went in-depth into it at the beginning of this episode. And really, I created the Heart Lab after this heart-wrenching divorce, and I kicked and I screamed as life dragged me in front of a mirror, and really, I had to discover some hard truths about how I approach relationships and the blocks and beliefs that stood between me and happily ever after. And when I peeled back all the layers of conditions I had created around my life and my identity, like, it required me to attend a thousand funerals of the woman that I used to be, but having done so means that I feel whole and complete exactly as I am, and it has transformed literally all of the relationships in my life, not just my romantic partnerships. And I'm passionate about sharing the lessons I integrated because I know how it feels like to be you. And I've been deep in the caverns of codependency and I felt like a victim of my own circumstances. And at the time, all I was craving was community and a roadmap. And I knew I could do the work on my own. And I have done all the work on my own, but it has taken me five years. 
And really that's what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to condense that time for you. So if you are in this position that I was back in 2015, where I was struggling to even know myself, um, struggling to connect with myself. And so of course I was going to have trouble connecting with my partner. Um, then this is the perfect course for you because we're basically condensing five years of work that I've done into eight weeks. The next step, if you want to work together, all you have to do is send me an email, cat at empoweredcuriosity.com and just say, hey, like I'd love to chat with you. And what we do is um, we'll book a 30-minute connection call and on that call, I will get to know you. I want to ask you some questions about your relationship journey so that I can actually understand what your unique struggles and, um, and I just want to learn more about what your particular relationship intentions are. And at the end of our call, one of two things are going to happen. You're either going to be a perfect fit and I will extend an invitation for you to join the next circle of the heart lab. Or if it's not a good fit, that's totally okay too. There's not going to be any hard feelings and there's no obligations on your part. I'm, I've always been able to suggest something else that you can do to achieve your goals and help point you in the right direction. So if you are ready to do this, I'd love to connect with you. My email address is cat at empoweredcuriosity.com and I hope we get to chat soon. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Empowered Curiosity Podcast. If you found the conversation to be valuable, make sure you screenshot, post, and tag me on Instagram so we can keep the conversation going. And to get notified when the next episode drops, make sure to subscribe on iTunes so you never miss one of our chats.